0: Well, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Judges chapter three. Judges chapter three. We remember that Joshua led Israel into Canaan. And once he led Israel into Canaan, they began a very long uh, military campaign that was uh, basically successful. And what they did is they conquered all of the primary Canaanite strongholds. But after they had conquered all the strongholds, even though they had done that, you just imagine conquering city-states, you know, a big walled city. Once that's defeated, the whole area is still inhabited by people that were living there. So throughout all of Israel, throughout every inch of it, there were remaining Canaanites living there. And so, the, the land was divided up among the tribes. and So you can see how those respective tribes uh, were given their land. And so the responsibility fell upon each individual tribe's shoulders to go in and take possession of the land that was given to them, and to remove the Canaanites. And to purify the land because there were all kinds of shrines and temples and stuff to these false gods. And so uh, this was their responsibility. Now the opening chapters of the book of Judges is an introduction. It's an overview. And in this overview, we are told right off the bat that Israel failed to do this. And uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is that they lacked faith. Um, what God had tasked them with was unpleasant, difficult, dangerous, and they lacked faith that God would be there for them and that He would drive the people out before them like He said He would do. So there was a lack of trust. Another reason is they're just disobedient. When things are difficult, sometimes people take the easy road. It was much easier to settle and live with the Canaanites than to force them out. And we know what happened. They settled down with them. They, they entered into covenant agreements with these people that they weren't supposed to do. They began to marry, intermarry with each other. And it wasn't long before the Israelites began to adopt their religious practices and beliefs. We also found out something interesting in chapter 3 last week, and that is that all of this was part of God's plan. The unfaithfulness of Israel did not mean that God wasn't happy with them. Israel was not off the hook, even though it was part of God's plan. Israel was doing wrong, and God was going to hold them accountable. But even while that is true, God orchestrated these events in order to test Israel. And so each generation was tested and the basic idea of that is that God was teaching each respective generation about Him, who He is. You think about World War II, you know, uh, there's very few survivors of World War II. Sam is not here today, but Sam is a survivor. He was in the Air Force, before the Air Force was the Air Force. But as that generation passes away, it falls upon the responsibility of the next generation to remember what happened and to teach the next generation. And so God incorporated the unfaithfulness of Israel and the sinful practices of the Canaanites, He incorporated all of that into His overall plan of teaching the nation of Israel about Him, who He is. Now, we've talked about this and. We talked about how the Book of Judges follows these cycles, and these cycles were repeated for more than three hundred years. And it's really important for us to understand, you know, big picture of what God is doing. You know, when when God gave the the law to Israel through Moses, that's why we call it the Mosaic law because it was given to Israel through Moses, but when God did that, it wasn't to just, you know, no dancing, gambling, drinking, smoking. It wasn't like that at all. It was uh, a way to live that was supposed to teach them about who God is, who they really are, And to prepare their hearts based upon that information for Christ. Galatians 3.24 says that the law was a tutor to Christ. And what that means is uh, the law was kind of like a gigantic mirror that you just turn right in front of yourself. And when you're looking at this mirror, it's just you. And you begin to get this really clear picture of yourself. So just imagine what it was like to be a Jewish person trying to keep the law. And... Uh, it was strict, and every day, and inhabited all aspects of their lives, and they failed at it all the time, over and over and over again. So, what happens when you can totally mess up and fail to obey the law over and over and over again? Well, it, it brings humility, you know, and then and so you're approaching God no longer from the uh, perspective of. I've really been doing good, God. Uh, I need an A. I deserve an A. Instead, you're coming to God uh, humbled. And you're asking Him for grace and mercy. You see the difference? You know It converts a person's mindset from you owe me to I can never do this. I am undone. It's like David in, in, in the song we had read this morning. Uh, you come to that place where you realize... You are undone. You were humbled because of your filthy sin and your inability to be faithful to God. And so you turn to God for grace and mercy. That was the purpose of the law. Well, the same thing can be said about the book of Judges or the period of the Judges. Especially when we consider that there was this continuous cycle and as they went through this continue, continuous cycle, there was a downward spiral. Things just kept getting worse. You see, that what that does to a, to a person who is honest about themselves is you come to this conclusion that you're bad. You're a sinner. You can't do it. I'm never going to be able to please God. I'm never going to be able to do enough right to where I earn His favor, to where God actually starts owing me. And so you become undone. And you become humbled by the experience of this 300-year historical period, of, uh, this 330 historical years of Israel's history where God was teaching them through this cycle that they need His grace and mercy. At the end of this cycle, we, at the end of this period, we know that things don't get better. They keep getting worse. And so at the end of the cycle... Instead of Israel coming to the proper conclusion, you know, uh, instead of coming to the proper conclusions about trying to fulfill the law, or coming to the proper conclusions about trying to live for God and going through these ridiculous cycles in the period of Judges, at the end of the cycle, they come to Samuel and they say, Why don't you appoint for us a king like everybody else has? We want a king. And so Samuel went to God in prayer and he said, this is what they're asking. What do you think about this, God? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, God says, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. You see, some people see the period of Judges as uh, this, uh, this journey that Israel had to go through that would prepare them for having a king. But that's not the case at all. God never expected them to have a king. He never wanted them to have a king. He wanted to be the king. So when you're obeying the law, you realize that you are completely dependent upon God. He is your deliverer. He is your protector. He is the one who sustains you. You completely have to have God. That's the response from trying to obey the law. As you go through the period of the judges, your response is, I am a piece of garbage. I am sinful. I am never going to be able to attain God's favor. I need Him. I depend on Him. He is the one who's protected me. Every time we go through these cycles and these, these I get myself into sin and I get into this bondage of sin and God delivers me from it, the proper response to that is to realize that it's God who is your deliverer. He's the one you need to be depending upon. And by the way, the same thing can be said about the period of time that's going to follow this when Israel would have kings. The whole thing... If you look at what happens in the historical periods when Israel has kings, when the nation was united under the first three and when it divided under the rest, the same thing can be said. What should have been the natural response of Israel is that they need God and they need to depend on Him instead of themselves. If you think about yourself as a Christian, you know... Hopefully, you are honest about yourself, and you will admit to God that you are not very good at being a Christian. I always pray to God, would you please help me to be better? I don't ever say, great job today, God, you know, it. that never comes out of my mouth. It's never in my brain. I will say sometimes I have a better day than others, but... Overall, I don't have a real high opinion of myself trying to live a good Christian life outside of God. It is the, the practice, the walk of a believer that is supposed to teach us that He is the one who delivers us, He is the one who sustains us, He is the one who protects us, He is the one who gives us power to walk in the light. We are dependent upon Him. And so, if out of everything I've just said, the most important thing to grasp is that God is walking us through time to teach us to depend on Him. And you know, you you knock your head against the wall for so long until it finally sinks in. This is the kind of picture that we see. So uh, in these cycles, God would raise up godly people, people of faith. He would handpick people that were living for Him and He would use them To deliver Israel from their enemies, to deliver Israel from the bondage they'd put themselves in because of their sin. And last week we looked at the very first judge, it was Othniel, it's verses nine through eleven. Wasn't much there. And it's a very sterile, generic introduction. It's the very first judge, and the reason it was so sterile is because God really wants us to just read those verses and see how that cycle is all right there. You can go all the way around the clock and see all of the aspects of the cycle in here without very many details at all. Hardly anything outside of what God is doing as He walks the nation through a cycle. And so there's not a lot of color and there's not a lot of detail. And that's very important because what God is wanting us to do is as we continue to move through this book, as we continue to go through the different stories and things that happen with these judges, We can get bedazzled by the details because, trust me, we're getting ready to read something that has vivid detail, vivid color, but God wants us to remember the cycle, identify the cycle, see what God is doing in the midst of these incredible situations and stories. And so, uh, let's read our passage this morning, Uh, begins in verse 12, and we're going to be introduced to a judge by the name of Ehud. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce that, but... Let's just go. It's a long E. Okay, Eddie? Eddie. Ehud. All right, so uh, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And so this is at the end of of Ophniel's uh, leadership as a judge. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him to Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. So Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long, and he strapped it to his right thigh underneath his clothes. And he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king called for silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his room upstairs where it was cool. had said, I have a word from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged, plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly and Eglon's insides came out. Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought, it was, they thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. So the servants waited until they became worried and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. He had escaped while the servants waited. He crossed over the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sira. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan near to Moab, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all strong and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land was peaceful 80 years. Well, let's first identify the cycle. It begins with peace. There was 40 years of peace that ended when Othniel died. It's in verse 11. And then we see Israel doing what was evil in the Lord's sight. And so he punished them. So God gave Eglon power over Israel. Then verse 12. Then in verse 15, we see that Israel cries out to the Lord and God raises up Ehud as a deliverer for them. And then in the deliverance, Moab fell and the peace followed for 80 years. So you can see the cycle in the passage we just read. You basically have to take the beginning of the passage and the very end of it to pull that together. The details are in the middle. It is the picture of this man who is the king of Moab, and he's got his throne in Israel. And Israelites have to serve him. And so they decide a way to kill him. And so they're bringing this tribute, this taxes. So they're bringing him this money, they give it to him, and then when they leave, so uh, Ehud leaves with the whole team after they paid the money. They get all the way to the edge of the country before the edges of the Jordan River. And once he sees that they've gotten back home safe, Ehud goes back alone. That's what happened here in the story. Now, uh, let's talk about some of these people. If you look on the map, especially to the right of the Dead Sea, you're going to see the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites at the top of the Dead Sea, if you cross the Jordan River, you're going to run into Jericho. And so a long time ago, when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, that was the first city they attacked. Now it's controlled by Moab. Eglon is the king of Moab. Well, remember that Abraham's cousin was Lot. And after Sodom and Gomorrah fell... Lot slept with two of his daughters. So his, his oldest daughter had a son with her dad, Lot, and that son was Moab. He had another son with his youngest daughter, and that was Am, Am, Ammon, the Ammonites. And then you remember that Jacob and Esau were brothers. And uh, Esau, his grandson, was Amalek. These were bitter enemies of Israel. We remember the confrontations between the Amalekites and, and the Jewish people in the, in the wilderness in Exodus. And so these people have banded together and they have successfully conquered Israel. And uh, we want to remember that uh, when you read about something a judge is doing, there may be one judge that's in one area of Israel and an actual another judge in another part. They're, they overlap Sometimes. And just because the king of Eglon was having everybody serve him doesn't mean that the entire country was serving him. We see the tribe of Ephraim crossing over for the attack at the end. We know that Jerusalem, for example, was controlled by the Jebusites. They controlled Jerusalem for the entire period of time. They controlled it for the entire time Saul was king. And then when David became king, he was the one who who ran the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. And so this is a localized situation. We do not know exactly how localized. But it's important for us to remember that aspect. And so here is these three warring folks who have conquered, entered Israel, conquered it, and using Jericho as their headquarters. This is where his throne is. This is the city of palms. And what's happening here is at the end of 18 years of that. So, after 18 years of that, we're reading what happens. Now, uh, it tells us here that Ehud is left handed. So, the guards must have thought that he was unarmed because he didn't have a sword on his left side. So, if you walk around with a sword and you're right handed, you're not going to have your sword on your right hand because you've got to do this number. You know, you're going to draw it from across. You know, so they assumed that he was right-handed and he didn't have a sword on his left side. We're told here that when he uses the knife, it goes all the way into his stomach. And so some swords have like a hilt, you know. And so maybe this sword did not have a hilt. It was just one long dagger with a handle. And the whole thing went in. And then we see that when, this was, when, the, when the assassination occurred, he locked the doors behind him. And he did that to buy himself time. Time to escape. Time to get back across the river. Time to announce to the tribe that Eglon was dead. Why was that important? Because it proved, it proved that God had handed the Moabites over to Israel. So what an encouragement it was a great rallying fact that Eglon had fallen. And so this uh, brought great faith to the people of Israel as they decided to try to take back what these people had taken from them. Uh, incredible act of courage, what Ehad did. Do you remember the courage of Esther? The Bible is full of people. With great courage. I've got a cop story. I've wrestled it around. I'm not going to tell it. <laughs> but I can tell you, I have witnessed courage. I'm sure you have. Mothers have done incredibly courageous things for their children. But Esther, what she did, put her own life in danger. As a matter of fact, the rule was basically you do something stupid like this and you do die. there she is. Pretty much the whole weight of the whole assassination was on Ehud's shoulders, wasn't it? He was the one. Took incredible courage. I've used the illustration about a baseball team before and how coaches, you know, the, the shortstop is twisted his ankle, jammed his thumb. He's going to send in somebody else. He's going to look at his row. He's going to look at his bench. Who's ready? Who can do it? God's the same way. We're on God's bench. But He has invited us to participate in His plan. There's things that God's going to do with or without you. You can check in or out. He's still going to accomplish His stuff but we have been invited to participate. And so sometimes God will call us up and He will utilize our strengths, our talents, our gifts, our abilities. But sometimes God will require things from us that are beyond our strengths, beyond our abilities. We think of Moses. When God called Moses, he did not, he was like, kept giving God 80 reasons why he wasn't the one. You know. God was asking something of Moses that was well beyond his capabilities. Well, in our text here, we see three different things that Ehud needed to be successful in completing God's mission. And. If God asks you to serve Him, you're going to need these three things too. The first one is power. God gave Eglon power over the Israelites. And God gave the Israelites power to overthrow Eglon. Verse 12 says, God... Gave, God gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So if you and I are going to try to do something for God, God needs to be in it. It's not a solo. Uh, you know, as a as a Christian, you don't do things on your own. You don't dream up something that you think God needs to do, and venture out on your own. He has to be in it you'll remember in, in 1 John that we studied not too long ago in chapter 5 it says that if we, ask, if we ask God anything in His will He hears us and He answers us when we ask anything in His will 1 John 5.15 we have what, he, what we have asked Him for in your Bible there Verses nine through eleven is the is the account of when Othniel was the judge, and you'll read there in verse ten. It says, "The spirit of the Lord came on him, and the Lord handed over the king of Aram to him. Othniel overpowered him. Who is in charge? Who overpowered? Who had the power? So, if you want to live for God and you want to make an impact, on your family, or your loved ones, or people at work, you're going to need God's power. You're going to need Him in your life. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to take control of your life and work through you. If you try to do things on your own, it's kind of like me up here trying to get that sound system to work last Sunday. Impossible. I didn't have the ability. It was something completely impossible for me. I got mad, you know. But... I look around, where's my sound guy? You know, where's those guys at? You try to do something on your own, it's a fool's game. It's a fool's bet. And so this is really important for us as believers. We see that what happened here, this incredible story with Ehud. But the only reason, I mean, just think about what he did, all of the key components of this plan. If if anything had went wrong, it wouldn't have occurred. God had to knock down every obstacle. He had to pave the way for that to occur. None of this happened by chance. We have to have God in His power. When we think of Jesus, there were certain scribes who were accusing Him of casting out demons as a ruse. That He was actually working in concert with the devil. That He was actually possessed by the devil. Do you remember that? He's he's casting out those demons by the power of Beelzebub. So the, 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 the logic there is that you got Satan. Jesus is on Satan's team. This guy is possessed by a demon. They're all on the same team. So Jesus acts like He's casting them out. The demon jumps out, but it's all just a trick to get you to believe in Jesus. That was what they were saying. of course, Jesus disagreed. I'm reading from chapter 11 of Luke. It's in the other Gospels. Uh, We study this in Mark together. Jesus said that Satan never gives up ground voluntarily. He doesn't do that. He would never have done that. Never in a million years. If, If those demons are going to come out of there, it's going to be by force. Someone's going to have to have more power Satan's not leaving. You're going to have to kick him out. That's what Jesus said. He said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And here's what he said. He said, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, He takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Jesus went on to say that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And he said, no one's going to enter a strong man's house unless you tie him up first, unless you bind him. He's not going to just let you do it. The strong man here is the devil. That's what's really happening with this demon-possessed person. Jesus banged the the strong man was fortified. He he had his guard up. He was ready to defend himself. But Jesus was stronger and he overpowered and bound the strong man. Then he entered his house and he plundered. He plundered the souls of men. That's what was rescued. It is a beautiful picture that we have to remember that whenever there is something that needs to occur that God wants to accomplish, you've got to have Him. So first, you've got to be ready. You've got to be available. You're going to need His power. The second thing is you're going to need a plan. You need God, but you also need a plan. You need to have a, have a strategy. And that's exactly what we see here. In verse 15 it tells us that the Israelites sent him, sent Ehud to Eglon king of Moab with tribute money. That was a plan. We don't know how that happened. We don't know the the nuts and bolts of how that fell together, but it could have been something like God impressed Ehud with this idea, Or God impressed Ehud or some of the leadership in Israel, some of the godly men and women of Israel, that God had had enough. He'd heard their cries. But at some point, these these folks came together and they, they, they came up with a strategy. What can we do to catch Eglon, the king of Moab, off guard? What can we do? They came up with a plan and the Israelites sent him to the king of Moab with tribute money. That was the plan. They wanted him to lower his guard. And remember, this is at the end of an 18 year period of time of Moabite domination. So for whatever reason, someone knew Ehud was bringing the tribute money. For some reason, it was a new guy bringing the money. And when you you bring the money to this king, what does that convey? It's conveying submission. He came there representing Israel with the money. We're whooped. We're conquered. You're in charge. Here's your tribute. We're we're complying with your payment. We're completely submitting. I'm coming here unarmed with the money. And then after they gave him the money, what did they do? It wasn't like the dollar bill that you leave on the ground with with the fishing line tied to it. So when they pick it up, you yank it. They left the money. And they left, and they walked all the way out of the country. They were almost to the the, the fords of the shallower parts of the Jordan. So they were almost they. It's like right on the banks of the river, towards Gilgal, were these gigantic stone images of these these Canaanite gods. That it, it marked the, the boundaries of Eglon's territory. So when you cross the Jordan to go into your own land, you had to go through those carved images. And so once this tribute team had gotten all the way to those images and he had saw that they had gotten across and were safe, he turned around and went back, went back alone. That's part of the plan. The knife was hidden. He was left-handed. They probably thought he was right-handed, but he wasn't. He was left-handed. The knife was hidden. He went back alone, getting them to drop their guard. And you know when he was coming back alone, unarmed, he wasn't. He obviously wasn't coming back to say, "We've changed our mind. Israel wants our money back." You know, it's like when you place the bet and the little ball on the roulette table is spinning around. It's too late to change your bet. The, it's, it's over. Whatever that little ball is going to do, the deed's done. And so he wasn't coming back there to to collect. He was alone. He was unarmed, and he enticed the king. With this secret message from God, and of course we know that when he locked the doors behind him, that was all part of his plan to buy time. What am I? What am I getting to all, all this about? There was a, a time not too long ago when God made it clear to me that He wanted me to go in the ministry. I toyed around with it for my whole life, really that maybe I had gotten to a place in my life where I was finally God said, okay, we'll put up with it, <laughs> or whatever. But I didn't just like become a preacher, you know. had have a strategy. I went to my pastor and I said, I think this is what God wants me to do. What do you think? And he had a lot of things to say real quick. And he had a lot of things for me to do. And he... He planned it out. He mapped it out. And I, I followed it religiously. Everything he said, I did it. If you want to you you get out of debt, there's some things you have to do. If you want to you marry someone who's a, a godly man or a godly woman, then you've got to do some stuff. You, it doesn't just happen. You know, you have to plan. If you're hungry... You don't just sit there like a little bird with your mouth open waiting for somebody to drop food in your mouth. God wants us to to work. He wants us to earn our way. He wants us to study, to show ourselves approved. He wants us to be available and to actually be ready. You know, if you want to know what God's will is, that means that as soon as He tells you, that's it, I'm doing that. This is where God wants us to be. So you have to have Him behind you all the way, And you have to plan. You have to make a plan. And so this is what we saw happening here with Israel. And then the final thing is that you have to have courage. Courage is when you're scared, but you do it anyway. That's what courage is. It doesn't mean you're not scared. It's it's stepping out in faith instead of walking by sight. God wants us to walk in faith. Walking by sight means doing things that make sense to you, not doing things that don't make sense to you. Uh, Taking the easy road, the comfortable road, following the world, following our flesh. That's what it means to walk by sight. But God wants us to not walk according to the ways of the world, but to seek God's counsel, to not try to live without God's counsel, without without God's wisdom, it's a it's a disaster waiting to happen. Second Corinthians five seven tells us to, for we walk by faith, not by sight. This is the Christian. It takes courage to do it. I talked about these, um, you know, these carved images that mark the boundaries. After Eglon was given the tribute, the team left Jericho and they made it to the carved images near Gilgal, there in verse 19. Just think about what we're talking about here. God finally got Israel to a place to where they were ready to obey Him. And they got right up to the edge of the Jordan River and it's a flood stage. And they're supposed to cross over and the first place they're supposed to take is that gigantic city with that gigantic wall around it with that big army. But God had got them to the place where they said, doesn't make any sense, we trust you God. And they walked across on dry land because they had courage, and they obeyed, they had faith. And so, as soon as they get across, the first place they camp at is Gilgal. Remember that place, that's where they... That's where they made that commemorative 12 stones for the tribe, for each one, for one stone. So when God parted the Jordan River at flood stage and dried the land and they walked through it, each a member from each tribe, each tribe was supposed to collect a, a large stone from the dried up water bed of the Jordan. And when they got across, they got to Gilgal and they erected this monument of these stones so they'd always remember what God did. This was the place where they they camped out. It's where uh, the men were circumcised. It's where they held Passover. Pretty important place. It's kind of like when you think about where you were at when you asked Jesus into your heart. It's a special place. Well now, that city that they had conquered was controlled by this Moabite king. And they had set these graven images as the boundary markers. Were Gilgal. Used to be. It was after, so when, when the team brought tribute, they went through those stone images into the territory. And when the team had escaped that part, they got out of the boundaries, Ehud went back in. And it wasn't until after he had escaped, after killing the king. We're told that he goes past those graven images, gets across the Jordan, and then he sounds the ram's horn and rallies the men. Those images are the walls of the strong man. Although it was Ehud and his army that overthrew the Moabites, it was God who bound the strong man.